you have to tell them the decisional unit and the factors that were taken into effect. And some of these things can be, we took into account the you know, the skills of the employees, the volume of business we're expecting, you know, whatever factors you want to consider, that's what you have to disclose in the, the WARN Act. I mean, the, uh, sorry, the All the Workers' Benefit Protection Act notice. And it helps you to do that because it, the process of deciding what factors you're going to use makes it not be as vague. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. Over the last six months or so, layoffs, especially in the tech and financial services areas, have made the headlines. And as concerns about a recession later this year continue, many business leaders are reconsidering the size and composition of their own workforces. So joining me today to discuss the legal and practical issues surrounding layoffs is Shannon Norris. Shannon is an attorney in private practice here in North Texas and has three decades of experience in employment and business law. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Shannon. Good morning, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. So you and I have been around a while and we've seen layoffs on both small and large scale. And for me, what seems to have really changed over the last few years is the amount of attention layoffs are getting uh, on a case-by-case basis in both social media and news media, uh, especially the social media side. We're seeing employees posting about how they feel after being laid off. And some of those posts are going viral and they're getting a a lot of feedback and traction with people who really don't know what the heck they're talking about as far as, you know, the kind of decisions companies have to make when they're laying people off. So before we get into the details of layoffs, what advice would you give employers who are planning a layoff, things to keep in mind uh, in the current hyper-woke social media environment? Well, I, I agree with all those observations. The first thing I think to consider is that everything you say can and will be used against you. So you need to think very carefully about your decision-making process before you make the decisions. Uh, there's a lot of judgmentalism right now, and second-guessing is a major, not just a sport, but a lucrative business. It's become our national uh, pastime, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, everybody's a critic, um, and and especially if people who don't want to be satisfied, that's their worst case scenario. Uh, is they don't have something to complain about. They're you know they're out of business. So you have to be aware that you have that type of personality, not just in the media, but in your workforce. You probably know those people already. So. Don't give them the rope to hang you with to the extent that you can, but you, you may never make them happy. And so just be ready that it, it may happen and you have to make your own decisions as an employer. Do we respond to this or do we just keep quiet? And, and I've seen employers fail trying it both ways. So I'm not sure there's a, there's a good answer on how you respond. But, so, but if we want to do it right, and we've seen a lot of criticism from you know, uh, you know, after Elon Musk took over uh, Twitter and how he let a whole bunch of engineering folks go, and and obviously the media 
and, and a lot of that didn't understand what the law legal requirements were and they got a lot of stuff wrong. Yeah, I was reading stuff and I'd see, you know, the, you know, he violated the Warren Act. Well, he was paying people out for a lot longer than the Warren Act required the notice period. So so let's start, I guess, with the Warren Act then. So who does it apply to and, and what are the requirements there? Well, the general requirement uh, is 100 employees. Uh, there's another exception if you have employees, you know, 100 employees who work 4,000 hours. Uh, but the general rule of thumb is if you hit 100 employees, not counting part-time generally, uh, you're going to need to think about that. And the essential requirement is that if you have a plant closing or mass layoff, which are reduction in force, you have to give affected employees 60 days notice of the uh of the termination essentially. And now it sounds a lot, sounds relatively simple, but like most things, there's, there are a number of wrinkles to that. And especially in an economy where, as we have seen in the last three years, you don't know what's going to happen uh, a week from now, much less, you know, six months from now. So uh, there's a, a lot of, prediction that has to be done. Uh, there's a there's a window looking back uh, 90 days plus and 90 days ahead, 90 days past and 90 days ahead to kind of predict what you're going to do, which if you had asked a lot of people in 2019, can you, you know, about these predictions, they would have had a lot more confidence than they do today. Right. Uh, and, or, and I think that's just a fixture we're going to have. There's a lot of uncertainty and we're, I wouldn't say used to it, uh, but we're certainly experienced and in, in, in what that does is uh, raises the stakes on getting it wrong uh, because there's a lot more risk to get it wrong. So 100 employees and mass layoff, how many, what percentage of 100 employees do you have to lay off for to qualify in, as a mass layoff? The, the typical example you see is one third of uh, or basically 50 employees is going to be your threshold. And then if you have a mass layoff, you can get to 500. But if you have 150 employees, let's say you have a plant, you have 200 employees in the plant and you lay off 50. Uh, that's not a third, but it is 50. So um, so if you but if you have, you know, if you have 100 employees at that one plant, uh, you know, you just have to kind of calculate the one third numbers that, and, and, and the important thing is to just to not assume anything. There's some guidelines you can follow, but when you start approaching those numbers, you have to be careful and count them very carefully. So if you basically, if you have more than a hundred employees, do your homework on the Warren Act and, and make That's sure right. that, that, that the way you're going to do it uh, is right. Now, you and I are both based here in Texas, but but uh, surprising to me, we have listeners all over the country. Uh, so um, we have the Texas Payday Act, and mm-hmm. other states have their own provisions uh, about how, you know, last paychecks are cut and stuff. And so just as using Texas as, a, as an example, what, what are the Texas Payday Act considerations when we do a layoff? The main payback consideration is if you have an involuntary termination, that person's supposed to get their final paycheck within six days. Some employers will do that on the next payroll date. You can do that if an employee voluntarily terminates, but if it's an involuntary termination, you need to process that within six days. And um, 
any other considerations? Well, let's. The NLRB has been active this year about uh, not liking severance agreements and in uh, and, and certain circumstances. And Biden administration is really hostile to arbitration agreements. Um, what are you telling clients who are looking at, at just what they're what they're doing in the area of severance agreements, uh, whether it's a layoff or just generally? Severance agreements, um, I think, get a bad rap. Uh, people call it hush money, things like that. It's it's not really that. Uh, now, at the same time, an employer wants to not finance someone who goes around and defames them. Uh, and so the NLRB, uh, and it's fairly recent guidance they're giving, but I don't think it's that much of a change. It's not as much of a change as it sounds. You can still have a confidentiality agreement. You just can't prevent someone from bad-mouthing you to the NLRB or the EEOC. And so if you if you have a broadly drafted uh, non-disparagement clause, it could be interpreted as saying you can't accuse the employer of an unfair labor practice or a discriminatory act. These agencies have their own jurisdiction. They don't like being interfered with where people can't do a report. The easy way to fix that, which has really been, I think, the practice for a number of years now, is you have a clause in there that says nothing in this agreement will prevent an employee from engaging in statutorily protected activity, including filing a charge with the National Labor Relations Board, et cetera. And whatever language you have, that's an exception that's built into it. And I generally try to, and, and this is back to some NLRB guidance in the past, a non-disparagement clause is you, know, you can prevent someone from knowingly making false statements. Uh, so if someone says you've been dumping, you know, oil in the lake and they know you haven't, that's not protected. So but you can't report us dumping water in the lake to the you know EPA. The EPA has an issue with that. <laughs> right. But lying about it, there's no there's no room for that. And so even if it's a smaller scale layoff, we're laying off five people or ten people or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, you know, and we're in as a business, we're thinking about do we want to do severance agreements? Your recommendation is still, yeah, you you want to, especially I guess if you're giving them some cash on the way out. Generally, uh, it's a good practice. It, it, eases the blow to the employee, but especially, you know, it takes time to find another job for most people. And so uh, particularly if someone has been employed for a long time, it's just a civil thing to do. Um, employers get a bad rap of just throwing people over at no, with no consideration at all. In my experience, that's absolutely not true. There's a question of how much they can afford. Uh, Everybody asks me, how much is enough? It's like the rule of thumb that you see is often two weeks for every year of service up to 26 weeks. Um, That's not a rule, Um, but it is a good thing to do, I think, because for one thing is it closes out the possibility that someone's going to come back uh, and it's finality and often can't get that for a thousand dollars sometimes that will make people mad but if you're in the position where you can offer a fair amount 
it's hard for the employee to turn it down. And if they go to the lawyer and the lawyer says, well, tell me about your situation. And it, the answer is, we lost a giant customer and our business was down 30%. And my department was eliminated. That doesn't sound very discriminatory. The best answer is probably take the money. And those severance agreements have should always probably be reviewed by counsel, but they typically have release of claims. The company doesn't owe me anything. I'm going to return all the equipment that I have yet to return. And what else do we generally put in those agreements? You mentioned non-disparagement. Right. Uh, well, if you're dealing with a group where there's more than one person involved and they're over 40, there's some language you have to include to get a release of an age discrimination claim uh, under federal law. And that's a separate issue. But the things I like to see in a, a separation agreement is, uh, you know, obviously you, you have language in it that releases any known and unknown claims as of the date they sign it. Uh, you can also have language in there, as you mentioned, where the employee returns all property belonging to the employer. I typically include language that says the employee represents they have not saved or downloaded any documents or information to any personal drives to make sure that those files don't just walk out the door, which happens a lot. Uh, and then if an employee has an existing confidentiality or non-compete agreement, I like to incorporate that in there and to say that nothing in this document will modify the provisions of your non-compete or, conf non or confidentiality agreement, which is attached as Exhibit A, because then you send it to the employee out the door, attached together. They have now signed it, an agreement that says nothing modifies it. It remains in effect, and they took money for that. It's going to be very difficult for the employee to just say that doesn't apply. Uh, one caution, uh, you, you can put confidentiality agreements in there, even if an employee didn't have a non-disclosure uh, trade secrets type agreement. You can put that in a severance agreement, but you can't put a non-compete. Uh, you can't buy a non-compete with money in a severance agreement. So, uh, but I think it's a very good practice to tell employees what you expect them to do. And people don't always have copies of those agreements. And you mentioned the Older Workers Benefit Protection Act. And so when I was first learned about it in my 20s, uh, I thought, oh, wow, those 40-year-olds, you know, they're, they're so old. Now I resent that anybody over 40 is considered uh, an older worker. Uh, but uh, so what does the OWBPA say uh, that we have to do? It's a federal law is passed. The purpose of it is to make sure that when employees are releasing age discrimination claims, that it's a knowing and voluntary release. And so it has requirements uh, to make sure that the knowing part, it has to specifically refer to claims under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. It's only claims that exist as of the date they signed the agreement and not something that happens in the future. It has to advise them to speak with an attorney. It has to give them 21 days to consider it, seven days to revoke it. And it has to be essentially written in plain language. Now, if it's a group, group being more than one, they have to have 45 days to consider it. And you have to have a, a disclosure that shows the decisional units that were involved and the job titles and ages of the employees who were and were not considered 
and offered the uh, the incentive or, or you know the release. So, um, and and the reason to that is if you get a, <clears throat> a document and you see everybody who was over forty, you know you 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 terminated everybody who's over sixty and everybody who's left is twenty eight. It starts to raise a statistical red flag. <laughs> So the employee then is, you know, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily discriminatory, but they know that if they care, they need to look into it. And so that 21 or 45 day period for them to consider it, does that mean we don't cut their severance check for that time of period? Or if they sign it earlier than that, is it safe to cut that severance check right away and and move forward? I am... proponent of saying that you will pay it within a reasonable time after they have after the revocation period has ended so if your processing systems will allow it i will say pay them on the eighth day after they return which is the day after the uh the revocation period has expired they can sign the agreement on the day they get it and that starts the revocation they can in other words waive the 21 or 45 days but they can't waive the revocation period. So give yourself an amount of time logistically to process the check after they sign it. And then I I would suggest signing it as soon as possible, uh, sending it as soon as possible after that revocation period is done. And that's it. So they sign it. And so even if it's on day five of 45, uh, we wait the revocation period and then we cut them the check and that's it. Right. And okay. if they wait till 45, if they wait 45, you add seven days to that. To that. Perfect. But nobody gets the money during the revocation period. <laughs> right. Which, which would, I mean, you know, because 99% of those employees are never going to file a claim or have a, you know, or, uh, it just holds them out and puts them in a tougher position, I guess, to mm-hmm. pay their bills and do other things over the next, you know, uh, you know, 45 days or 21 days, whatever it is, just to get the, you know, just to wait for the cash to yeah. come in. Exactly. And it also, when you're talking, if you're giving a, a, you know, a reasonable amount of money, you have an employee who is just terminated and let's say they feel like they are going to sue you, but if they sign the agreement, they get $10,000. They have to bet $10,000 to take, they're going to be saying, I choose to pass on $10,000. I'll bet 10, it's essentially equivalent of betting $10,000 on a lawsuit. It's hard to turn down if that's there. Uh, so it does give an incentive for people, even, and that's a windfall for people who know that, that yeah, great, I, I wasn't going to sue you to begin with, right? Right. I, I'd be more than happy to take the money. But if you've got someone who's on the, you know, kind of teetering, I think I want to sue them, but then they have to pass up the money for what's behind door number one. It's maybe not as attractive. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for three quarters of a recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 95 and enter the keyword layoff. That's L-A-Y-O-F-F. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, 
Check out the webinars page at imperativeinfo.com. I have 14 hours of recorded webinars, each approved for an hour of recertification credit by both HRCI and SHRM. Three are even approved for HRCI business credit, and three qualify for ethics credit. You can access all of these webinars for free at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Shannon Norris. So back in good old 2020, um, when people, when companies, you know, started shutting down or laying people off or sending them home for some period of time, there was a lot of conversation about, well, you're not laid off, you're not terminated, you're furloughed. And, uh, or you were laid off, you weren't, term, you know, employees, I saw a lot of social media stuff. Uh, well, you know, they, they're saying I was terminated, but I wasn't, I was laid off. And so is there a legal difference between a furlough, a layoff, and just a, a straight termination? Well, when this started happening in 2000, it was like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. Uh, I honestly had, I don't know that I ever had a situation where someone was furloughed. You're either employed or you're not employed. The right. dif- difficulty with the furlough is, are you still on benefits, um, which often require you to be actively at work um, or, or perhaps on a leave of absence, but it's like, well, you're not really employed, but you're not really fired. And it was this limbo stage. Uh, and so I, I always hated the word furlough. It was always better to have a layoff. And if we have an opening, we'll send you a notice and you can reapply for, or you can reapply if we have an opening. It was cleaner. Um, but that's COVID being what it was. No one knew what was going to happen. A week or 10, you know, I remember I heard someone say it's like the, the worst part of 15 days to slow the curve is the first three years. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we just didn't know. Um, right. And so I, I think a lot of people went to that and there was some relief as far as the benefit plans issues were concerned. I, that seems to have stabilized. Uh, as a lawyer, I still don't like the limbo furlough you can put people on, you know, particularly if they're salaried. Um, you need to, you either need to be working or not working, and uh, I, I don't. I can think of very few situations where a furlough is the word I would use. Yeah, I think that furlough language is something. It's kind of like the seven-step disciplinary action plan. It kind of made its way to non-organized, non-union environments. Uh, just because we had heard it so much about union, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, we're in Texas, pew, pew, you know, unions aren't yeah. in a lot of industries here a big deal. Uh, and most, you know, especially small to medium employers aren't dealing with them. And so, but I think it also, for that hiring manager or for that 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 manager or that business owner who's laying people off, furlough just sounds softer than layoff, right? And it sounds, you know, less impactful. Although if, if I'm the guy who's not going to have the paycheck next week, uh, it seems like a, the same impact. Uh, and it extends, you know, a, you know, maybe some hope out there that, yeah, this is temporary. But like you said, I, I unless you've got a union contract, a, you know, bargaining agreement that says this is the way we do it here. Um, let's, let's be really clear. Okay. As of today, because of this circumstance, you don't work for the company anymore. And, uh, you know, like you said, if things turn around, 
uh, and we have some more positions open and we, you know, we get back to full production, uh, we will post it and you, you know, and we may even reach out to you proactively, uh, and you can apply. But, uh, I think that's the other thing I, I saw employers make the mistake of doing in 2020. They, they promised employees, Hey, as soon as things get back to normal, we're going to bring you back. But then they started realizing, okay, we, maybe we didn't need all those people, or maybe we didn't need that person. And wow, everybody sure smiled a lot more after that person was no longer here. Uh, and But now they've kind of made a promise. It may not be contractual. It may not be something that they can be held to in law, but everybody heard them say that, and it's it's not a great position for an employer to be in. Right. If, you, if you're a non-union employer, uh, don't create a collective bargaining agreement uh, <laughs> just by, you know, just on the on the fly and recall rights. When you think of furlough, you think, okay, there's a recall right, and then you get into seniority and oh my lord, as opposed to being the at will employer that says we've let people go based on our current needs. We'll reach out to you know to Susan because she was pretty good. We really hated to let her go. We just didn't have the business, so we'll, we'll reach out and offer her, and you can give a little bit of hope to the people and but without making a promise uh you know if things work out is not really a promise it's like it's maybe a, a we'll agree to think about it but it doesn't handcuff you and of course the employees don't want to be handcuffed either they if they find a better job they're going to right. go so if you have an at-will employment arrangement don't change it well and i think you definitely, you know, if you really care about these folks, you don't want them turning down other opportunities or not seeking other opportunities on the hope that things are going to get better at your place and you'll bring them back. Uh, right. And and I think that I think there are people who did that in 2020 and uh, and regretted it. But so you mentioned seniority. So how do we? What do you? What's the best way to pick who gets laid off? Uh, and, uh, you know, if we've, we've got this financial situation in the company or, or things have changed and we're doing this, how do we pick who? That's a tough question. Uh, you, I think the best approach is to look at the needs of the business and, and you don't let the tail wag the dog. You're in business to be in business. Your best defense is I had a legitimate, non-discriminatory business reason. And if you start taking into account factors other than, you know, the needs of the business, now you're picking and choosing. And the issue is people are in more than one type of protected class. It's like, well, you happen to pick the older, more seniority employee to be laid off. Well, I did it because he made twice as much. It's not a financial situation, but... Uh, so if you focus on seniority, you know, that can be a proxy and it can raise kind of a disparate impact treatment. So you really have to drive what are the needs of the business. You have one employee who can do three tasks and another employee who can do two. Which employee should you pick? Well, if, you know, if this employee can do the work of, you know, if, if you if you have a task that can be assigned to one employee, but not the other way around, just because that employee who's going to be let go, which is another issue, is in a protected class doesn't mean that's the reason they were selected. So the gist is let every, you know, 
let everything be driven by your business decisions. And, and I wouldn't say don't talk about, think about protected characteristics, but the best way for those not to be a factor is to focus on something else. How about past performance, measuring, ranking employees based on performance measures that are hopefully objective? <laughs> and, uh, and if you've got a good performance management system in place saying, okay, we only need three of people in this, in this, uh, job right now. We've got nine right now. You know, we've got nine, we only need three. So let's pick our, our three best. And then looking at, you know, everything from performance to attendance and things like that. Um, any concerns with, with those kind of measures? Be able to document it. Um, you know, uh, if I would say a formalized process, you know, and some of it is subjective. How do you say someone's got a better attitude? Um, hopefully all of your performance reviews don't say that everyone is above average. Um, you know, if the employee's had 10 years of meets expectations and all of a sudden he's terrible, that's just where it comes. You know, your kindness comes back to bite you. So, Try to be objective and be able to explain it. If you can't explain it now, you probably are going to have a hard time explaining it later. So think through the process and hopefully document that. So how much information should an employer give the affected employees about how the decision was made then? You, you have to tell them the decisional unit and the factors that were taken into effect. And some of these things can be, uh, you know, we... We took into account the, you know, the skills of the employees, the volume of business we were expecting, um, you know, senior, you know, yeah, whatever factors you want to consider, that's what you have to disclose in the the Warren Act. I mean, the uh, sorry, the Older Workers Benefit Protection Act notice, um, and it helps you to do that because it the process of deciding what factors you're going to use makes it not be as vague. So I would, I mean, you really need to somewhat formalize the process. And there are some tools you can also use to see if it's having a, a disparate impact. Um, I've seen situations where, uh, you know, you, you have employees and uh, they're all in a protected class and were laid off as part of a group. Well, you know, the whole group was people over 40 and you, you know, well, that's not like you're all of a sudden laying, you know, even though you have a 99% over 40, it's six people or, 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 right. or say it's, it's nine people and one of them was under 40. Um, it's even though it looks on a uh, statistically as a significant impact, if it came down to a lawsuit, you'd have to have an expert who would explain your sample is not big enough. So you just look at you look at who it's affected and you at least consider how is this going to be scrutinized. So if we say, look, we're, we've got financial situation here and our cost of our labor cost for production is is just 30 percent too high for what we can what the market will bear for our product right now. And we've got to we've got to make these adjustments is looking at the salaries of employees uh, and saying, okay, we're going to cut the, you know, the 30% most expensive employees. Is that 
uh, which is likely to create a no WBPA. You know, it's going to disparately impact people over 40 um, just because they've been there long enough and they've had the, you know, the accrual of pay. Uh, is that is that a problem under OWBPA? It, it, well, I don't know that it's a problem, but it certainly can be an area of dispute. Uh, I have seen situations where the employer literally said to the employee, we can hire two people for what we're paying you. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty clear, and, and if they go ahead and do it, uh, yeah, it might be a little better to tell the employee you can keep your job if we cut your pay in half instead of just letting him go. But it, financial considerations are legitimate business reasons. That's the really the epitome of it. Um, but you're right. You do have people who've been there for a long time, many, many years of experience, typically are over, or let's say they're older than an entry-level employee with no experience. But you could have an entry-level employee who's 55 years old and never mm-hmm. had, I mean, it pays the same as someone who's 22. So the the uh, the financial considerations there, and of course you could, like you said, and it, you probably should, I guess, say, okay, here's what we can pay for this job. This is what we're gonna the the market adjustment we're gonna make. Do you want to keep this? You know, if you want to do it, but uh, but that is a recipe for disaster as far as employee yeah. engagement. This is not going to be the employee who loves working with you anymore when you cut half their pay. And even if they yeah. accept the cut in order not to lose their job right now, you got to you know you got to question. You know, you're going to have to manage performance pretty tight because right. uh, it can be a real issue. And then that's the person who posts the letter on Reddit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. You put it on Reddit, yeah. You put it on, in, in writing, you give it to them, and you can bet it's going to be on Reddit yeah. and go viral, and there'll be a YouTube video before it's over and everything right. else. And there's not one thing you can do about it. Right. <laughs> so, But you just got to have all your, all your ducks in a row, have everything documented. Yeah. And if the disparate impact claim comes, it comes. Mm-hmm. But if you've if you've really made your decision uh, objectively and fairly with you know really connected to business purposes, nobody wants to have to have those conversations or defend those those, those inquiries. But that's just got to be ready. The other thing that's come up a lot uh, in in the recent layoffs has have been you know we've got so many more remote employees than we used to have. And we've seen a lot of the big tech companies who had remote employees, you know, you know, they used to all be based in near the headquarters in Silicon Valley or wherever. Now they're, you know, living on a farm in Montana. Uh, and we're doing these layoffs, rem- you know, remote. And, uh, you know, this is pulling the curtain back. Uh, we record these weeks in advance of uh, airing them. But uh, McDonald's just announced this week that they're they're doing layoffs. And these are people who are actually in the office normally and McDonald's told them this week don't work work remote because we are going to do layoffs and we want to handle them all online and I'm sure there's some logistical value to that but uh, let's just I would really question McDonald's logic on that but uh, from a <laughs> from a long-term point of view but let's just talk about remote employees um, how, what, how do you like to see people, uh, companies uh, lay off people that are they're working remote? Well, it's uh, remote working is still fairly new and people are still working their way into it. We have these, you know, 1930s statutes, you know, the Fair Labor Standards Act. Let's just say it was not written with remote working in mind. And then you have the Warren Act, the same thing. 
where is the employee in Montana employed? Uh, what's his site of employment? If you have a traveling employee, you know, I, I, I'm based in San Francisco, but I'm only there once a month. Every other day I'm out traveling, visiting at the company. Well, that's my base, even though I may not live there, but that's where I'm technically based. Well, if I have never set foot in the place, right. And you know, and I live in Montana. Where's my site of employment? So you are you going to count me for the Warren Act? The Warren Act was not written with that in mind. If you have a plant across you know, a campus, that you know, <laughs> and you have the product management and and in production across the street from one another, that's a little easier. But uh, so as far as handling it, you know, there's no really fun way to terminate someone. I think people are, if someone has worked remotely their entire time and they were hired remotely and they work remotely, they're probably not, not going to be shocked if they're terminated remotely. So I would look at, especially if they, you know, they may not even live in the town with the manager who has to deliver the news. Well, you're not going to show up at their house. Um, so I think you have. Yeah, to that would be a social media post from Hale, that would, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like they flew a thousand miles to fire me, but they wouldn't. They, they, you know, mm-hmm. they didn't have any money for a separate. But they couldn't right? afford me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so sensitivity really is the the measurement I would use as far as the message is concerned. Um, and be mindful that anything you say could be recorded. The employee can have their phone recording. Um, which can be good or bad. Sometimes employees shouldn't record the things they say. Um, but that's something to consider when you get into the logistics of it. Um, you get into very complicated issues about where, about unemployment, for example. Um, but that's something you probably should have thought of before the day you terminate. If we let them go remote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm hearing from more and more employers who had an, they terminated an employee for whatever reason and the employee moves on. And then six weeks later, they get a, a done letter from some other state's unemployment commission saying, hey, you're not registered here and you owe us these money and, this, and these fines. And they realize, oh, this guy lived in Colorado, but we don't have operations in Colorado. And so that, those are the kind of things that I think a lot of employers still aren't ready for. And, uh, and I think a lot of employees are kind of dodging the question as to where where do you live? There, you know, everything's direct deposit, and, and we don't have a problem. But uh, maybe the mail still goes to mom's house, but I'm living in another state. I've literally seen that happen where someone moves and they don't tell. Um, yeah. But then when they get, you know, what your situation you're talking about is like, well, now they're filing an unemployment claim in in Colorado. The state of Colorado's position is the state of Colorado gets the money as a general right. rule. So, but if that person is working there, uh, it, it becomes complicated. Um, but you, I mean, and don't ask, don't tell is not a good policy from the yeah. employer's standpoint for that. So, what about you know we saw we saw Google and 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 I think uh, uh, Twitter and some others put out emails overnight. So when everybody went to log in on you know monday morning or whatever uh their credentials didn't work and uh but they and their personal email i guess they had an email saying it was nice knowing you but 
And they got a lot of criticism about how impersonal that was. Uh, do you have thoughts? I mean, I can totally see the logistical point of view of doing that, uh, especially when you've got proprietary information and 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 com- competitive information, uh, and you don't want people logged into your network with access to the you know all your you know all your treasures uh, on the day that they're the most unhappy with the company. So, any ideas about that that email approach? Well, if you're laying off so many people that you can't talk to them, you, you know, I, I, that's maybe the least worst case uh, to do it. If you, if you just can't, I would say if that's the only way you can do it, then that's you're stuck with that. Um, it's certainly not unusual to lock someone out while they're in the meeting being terminated. Um, it only takes one vindictive employee to erase 40 terabytes of data or download it or, you know, things like that. So it's very good security to revoke their credentials. Uh, In fact, it's foolish if you don't. But I I think that's the, you know, sending someone an email and that says, oh, we fired you effective at 12.01 a.m. is at least bad optics. Now, I don't think it's necessarily illegal, but it doesn't look good. Yeah, yeah. And especially, again, when it gets out there on social media. Now, some of it will blow over, especially if you're a, you know, if you're a uh, a Twitter or a Google or something like that, you can take the hit, right? I mean, you know, we'll do a dozen other th- dumb things this week that will get us in, in more trouble than that, and, and everybody will forget this. But a, a small local employer – that's really reliant on community trust to recruit your future employees and maybe even to uh, have customers and in, in, in the community. You've really, I think it's a lot more imperative that they, that they be seen as good citizens and, and, and fair uh, and compassionate in how they do what they do. I agree with that. And, and again, it shouldn't be that unmanageable. Uh, if you have how many employees are you really laying off? Uh, unless you're a Google or a Twitter. Uh, yeah. When you're laying thousands or tens of thousands off, I totally get why managers mm-hmm. aren't meeting one-on-one with people. Because often the managers are also getting laid off. And, uh, and and so you're leaving it to that VP to do it. And that's not going to work. That's almost a sign of bad things were done before that. <laughs> to get yeah. uh, you know, COVID or whatever. To get that bloated. Yeah. To get that bloated, uh, you probably should have been ahead of the curve. Yeah, and I think that's what's happened a lot. Of, you know, the money was coming, and so we're in, you know, a lot of it was government money. Here, the government's going to yeah. keep paying you the, these dollars, company, to do whatever. And, uh, and then that dries up, and suddenly the market's changed. One last thing that get a, I've, I've seen employers get a lot of heat for is we're laying off employees who are on FMLA or on some other kind of leave. Uh any special concerns around somebody on on a bona fide leave uh, getting laid off? I think it's a perception more than it is a reality because the FMLA is very clear. If you can be laid off if while you're at work, you can be laid off while you're at le- on leave. So, uh, yeah, if the you're on leave and that unit closes down, you're not being treated any worse than you would be while you were actively at work. Now, if you're the only person that got laid off, that might be a separate issue, but um, you're not t- entitled to greater protections 
simply because you're on leave. It, you're treated the same as if you were still at work. But an employer shouldn't consider somebody's leave status in determining who gets laid off. Well, this guy's going to be on leave for the next three months, and so we shouldn't. We should just include him in this layoff. I would say no. You're not. You know. You would not want to consider their leave status as a contributing factor. Uh, you know, essentially, it's like, well, this that's a, that's kind of a proxy saying well, he's got cancer and he's out for all this chemo, so we can do without him. Uh, mm-hmm. Not not what you want. Well, Shannon, that is all the time we have today. I think we've we've covered a lot of the bases and. HR being HR, tomorrow there'll be a dozen others that uh, we never even conceived of that have, that have blown up. But uh, thank you for, for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening. You can comment on this episode or search our previous episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and you can reach him at robmakespods.com. And thank you to Imperatives Marketing Coordinator, Marianne Hernandez, who keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week, and until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.